You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Ecclesiastes 5 is uh, where we're going to be today as we continue in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've entitled this uh, uh, life under the sun, because really that's what the, the, the teacher is showing us. He's showing us how to actually not just survive, but thrive in life under the sun. And today, as we continue, I, I want us to look, um, we're going to look really at, at chapter 5 and parts of chapter 6, um, but I'm just going to read uh, one verse. I'm going to invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God's Word as we read this together. Um, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, the reason we stand is because we recognize this is not just some normal book that I'm reading a passage from, but these are the words of God spoken to us and they're alive and they're active. And so as we read these words, it's just as powerful as if God was in the room speaking them to us. So that's why we stand, right? I mean, if the President of the United States walked in here or somebody of high honor, you would probably just stand uh, for them out of reverence because they're about to speak to you. And so we recognize, man, this is God speaking to us right now. So that's why we stand. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. I'm reading from the NIV translation. And by the way, as always, the notes for the, uh, the sermon on the Version Bible app, if you want to grab those. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. Let's pray one more time. Father, today as we talk about money... I know that's something that uh, we don't like to talk about openly. Um, I know my own heart, the temptation towards uh, always feeling I need more money. Um, I pray that right now that you would just um, use this time not to... um, I pray that nobody leaves here motivated by guilt or by shame or by fear. Um, But I pray that we would just be overwhelmed with your love and your grace. And from that, you would make us a generous people. Um, that live in such a way that it demands a gospel explanation. And we see more people far from you be brought near. And in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. How many of you, when it comes to your finances and your possessions, would say, I am perfectly content? How many of you would say, "Uh, I honestly don't feel like I need any more money. Uh, I don't need any more possessions. I am perfectly content right where I am. Let's see a show of hands. How many of you? I think I see one person uh, in the room, and praise God um, for that. That is awesome. But for the majority of us, uh, myself included, I think we do feel like we need more money or we need more possessions. Um, like so many in the rest of our society, um, we believe this story that says, if I could just get one more paycheck or one more possession, like then I think I could be happy. I think of John D. Rockefeller, who's one of the wealthiest men to ever live. You've heard us say this before, but when he was asked, how much more do you need? He said, just a little bit more. And I think all of us, if we can be honest, feel this way. We buy into this story that says, if we could get more stuff, we would be happier. And as a result, we live right now in one of the most consumeristic societies the world has ever known. I'm just listening to some of these stats. According to the Los Angeles Times, there are 300,000 items in the average American household. 300,000. 
Uh, despite the fact that the size of our homes have nearly tripled in 50 years, according to the U.S. Department of Energy, one out of every four Americans are unable to park their car in their garage. There's just too much stuff in it. Uh, this is why the self-storage industry is now one of the fastest-growing businesses in the U.S. Uh, we currently have 50,000 storage facilities in America. That averages out to 7.3 square foot of storage space for every American. Literally, we could sleep our entire nation in storage units if we didn't have all of our stuff in there. 3.1% of world's children live in America. 3.1% of the world's children live in America but they own 40% of the toys that are consumed globally. According to the Wall Street Journal, Americans spend $1.2 trillion every year on non-essential goods. In other words, on items they don't need. Um, Well, if you haven't guessed it, we're talking about money this morning and our possessions and our attitude towards those things. And let me just say before we dive into it, um, I know that this is an awkward topic for all of us. It's awkward for you to listen to. It's awkward for me to preach, especially because I have a salary that's tied to the money that y'all give to the church. Um, and um, I, I want to say this as well. I have not arrived. Uh, this is a sermon, uh, like all sermons, that I have to preach to myself. Uh, some are harder than others. And this week I have found myself honestly being... Um, convicted and being challenged uh, by this text. And so just know, like, I'm with you in this journey. This is awkward. It's not easy. But here's the thing. As difficult as this topic is, it's a very important topic for us to cover. It's so important um, that Jesus talked about money and possessions more than anything else other than the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus talked about money and possessions so much um, that actually if you read the Gospels, you would see that 25% of his teachings are on this topic. And so if I taught about money and possessions as much as Jesus, I would preach on this once a month, okay? And so uh, aren't you glad? Aren't you guys glad I'm not uh, totally like Jesus yet? I uh, haven't arrived yet. Um, Jesus talked about money a lot. And one of the reasons he did this is because he knows that money is the greatest indicator of what we actually worship. And we can say all day long that God is number one in my life, but if you look at your bank account, that will actually tell you what number one in your life really looks like. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, um, and this is a, a verse, by the way, a passage that I would encourage your MCs to just really wrestle with uh, today during your discussion. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And listen to this last line. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, uh, Tim Keller, in his commentary on this, here's what he says. Money flows most effortlessly to that which is its God. Money flows most effortlessly to that which is its God. And this is one of the reasons Jesus would speak so much about money. Because he knows that it actually tells you what you really treasure. What you really worship. What it is you're building your life on. That's one of the reasons Jesus spoke about it so much. Another reason... I think Jesus talks so much about money and possessions is because he knows how easy it is for us to be controlled by it and not even realize we're controlled by it. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I wonder how many of you, let's see a show of hands. How many of you would say in here, I am a greedy man or I'm a greedy woman? Okay. A few of you. Thank you for being honest. And by the way, I think one of the reasons we even feel we can raise our hands publicly on that 
is because it maybe doesn't even feel like as big as a sin as some of the others. Like if I asked you right now, how many of you struggle with pornography? How many of you have cheated on your wife or your, sp- uh, you know, your spouse this past week? Or how many of you have been robbing from the government or whatever? We'd be a lot less likely to put our hands up because that's not as acceptable as greed is in our culture. Right? Jesus says, watch out for this. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Why? Because this is a sneaky sin. Most of us don't feel like we're greedy. And even if we do feel like we're greedy, for a lot of us, we don't feel like it's really that big of a sin. But what we're going to see today is that as small and seemingly insignificant as greed is, it actually has devastating effects on our lives and our society. And that's actually where the teacher in Ecclesiastes starts. If you look back in verse 5, he, he shows us the negative effects that money can have on us. And he says, you know, the first problem with money is that it can fuel a selfish society. If you look at verse 8, he says this, If you see the poor oppressed in a district, injustice and rise denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is odd by a higher one, and over them both are others who are higher still. The decrease or the uh, the increase from the land is taken by all. The kings himself profits from the field. Some of us we look and we say, "Wow, there's so much corruption in the government." And the teacher says, "Yeah, like don't be shocked by that." Like, of course there's corruption. And why is there corruption? Because there are people in higher positions who are like us. There are people who live kind of in this top-down system that really they care mostly about this kind of self-centered financial gain. And what happens is whenever you put people in those positions, it leads to corruption and it leads to oppression, especially of those who are kind of at the bottom. Next, he goes on and says another problem with money and our wealth is that it actually can curse our satisfaction. If you look at verse 10, which we read earlier, he says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Now I want to be clear right here. Money is not evil. The Bible never says money is evil. It says in 1 Timothy, Paul says that the the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's what we have right here in verse 10. This is a man who loves his money, a man who believes that money is what will give him happiness and fulfillment and security and satisfaction. However, what happens? The more that he gets, the more that he wants. Again, the line is, no matter how much he gets, he never feels like he has enough. And therefore, he is not satisfied. He feels as though true contentment and happiness is always just beyond his reach. Next, in verse 11, he says, here's another problem with money. Uh, Look at this, verse 11. He says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefits are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? What is he saying here? He's saying that money actually can damage your relationships. I think about uh, Floyd Money Mayweather. You guys know Floyd Money Mayweather, the boxer? Yeah, I mean, he's always traveling around with this entourage. I think we even have a picture of it. Maybe we can put on the screen. But but he's always traveling around with these different people. And, and, and if you know anything about uh, Money Mayweather, he'll actually even go to like dealerships and their stories where he spends millions of dollars to buy cars for these people. And as I've thought about uh, Floyd, you know, it's easy to look and envy his life and be like, man, how cool would it be to always have these people following you around? But, I, you know, I thought, you know, if I was Floyd... I couldn't help but wonder when I lay my head down at night, do these people really love me or do they just love what they can get from me? And see, that's one of the disadvantages of being wealthy. You have all these people who want to be around you, but you don't know, do they actually even care about me? Do they actually even love me or just what I can do for them? 
So money can damage your relationships. Uh, the teacher goes on. He says, here's another problem with wealth. It can actually rob you of sleep. Verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet. Whatever they eat, uh, whenever, yeah, whether they eat little or much, uh, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. The teacher says, here's an irony for you. You work really hard to get all this money and all these possessions, but then once you get it, you can't actually rest. Literally, he says the blue-collar worker who makes like little to no money sleeps better than the wealthy man who appears to have it all together. And why is that? Because with more wealth comes more worries. Or in the words of the great philosopher, the notorious B.I.G., more money, more problems. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. He's the second wealthiest man on the planet right now. Many believe within the next five years, he'll be the wealthiest man on the planet. He's actually uh, valued at over $176 billion. Uh, let this blow your mind. In the last year, Elon Musk made $383 million a day. A day. That means in one week, think about this, he makes enough money to buy the New York Yankees, the Dallas Cowboys, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Toronto Maple Leafs, Manchester United... That's a soccer team, by the way. Um, and he could start his own airline, all with one week's pay. Uh, Ten years from now, it's estimated that he will be worth $3 trillion, which is more money than we currently have circulated in the United States. And in a recent tweet, here's what he said. I have great highs, terrible lows, and unrelenting stress. Many nights, I have to make the choice between no sleep or Ambien. In other words, even when he stops working, he can't stop worrying. He has possessions to protect, money to invest, decisions to make, deals to finalize. And and so he is supposed to be sleeping, but even when he's supposed to be sleeping, he can't turn his mind off. And maybe some of you, that's where you find yourself. Maybe it's not Ambien. Maybe it's Tylenol PM. Maybe it's medical marijuana. Maybe it's just a couple glasses of wine to take the edge off. And before you know it, you're completely dependent on a substance. You become like a machine. You always need something to either put you to bed or to wake you up. You have money, but you don't have rest. He goes on to verse 13. He says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost or some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Some people love stuff so much they can't even enjoy it. I think about a guy in our neighborhood who has this car, really fancy car, but he never wants to drive it or never wants to take it anywhere because he's afraid it's going to get dinged up. He doesn't want anybody to sit in it because he doesn't want to mess up the smell. So he has this, but it's like he's just, he can't even enjoy it because it means so much to him. That happens where he says there's other people in here that they, they have something and they enjoy it, but it's taken away from them. Because they can't actually control what happens on the outside. In our, in our team sermon prep that we do every Wednesday at 12 o'clock, which all of you are invited to, it's here. We have sandwiches. We, we dive through the text. We're going to be preaching this week to figure out how to teach it best to the people that will be here. There was a woman who shared with us how her, her father was incredibly wealthy. He worked very hard to build up a lot of money, but then he made one bad deal. He let a person into his life who he built a relationship with. He let them get too close, and they basically took all of his money. So now he has nothing to show for from all of the years of his work, nothing to pass down to his kids. And that's what it's saying in here. Money is like that. Easy come, easy go. There are things that happen outside of your control. Stock market crash, planes flying into a building, a pandemic, somebody that kind of screws you over, whatever, and you can lose your money in the blink of an eye. 
He goes on in, in verse 15 and he says this, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil so they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? You know another reason why you shouldn't look to wealth for happiness? Because it can't conquer death. Even if you don't lose your money in this life, you will lose it in your death. Um, Alexander the Great is considered to be one of the greatest uh, warriors and military leaders of all time. By the time he was 30 years old, uh, he had built one of the largest empires that stretched from Greek to India. And one day after falling deathly ill, he knew he was going to die. And he said to his mom, hey, here's three instructions I want to give you. These are three ways I want to be buried. And here's what he said. Number one, I want my casket to be carried by my doctors. Number two, I want my dead body to travel this path that is lined by gold, silver, and jewels. And number three, I want to be buried with one arm hanging out of my casket. When he was asked about these very like odd requests, here's what he said. I want my doctors to carry my coffin so everybody knows no doctor can ultimately heal you. No doctor, no matter how good they are, can save you from death. Two, as far as the gold, silver, and jewels lining the pathway to my graveyard, I want everyone to remember that even I, who worked so hard to get all this stuff, right, I can't take it with me. And then he said, three, as far as my hand dangling out of the coffin, I want people to know that even I, Alexander the Great, will leave this world in the same way I entered it, empty-handed. What is Alexander the Great saying? He's saying the same thing the teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying. Everyone's dying for money, but everyone will die without money. Even if you don't lose it in this life, you're going to lose it in your death. And so money can curse your satisfaction. It can curse your relationships, your rest. Money is something you cannot take with you. And therefore, what the teacher goes on to say next, if you build your life on this thing that is like smoke, right? Again, you can you try to grasp what's going to be taken away from you. Eventually, what he says in verse 17 is it will drive you mad. If you look at verse 7, it says, All the days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. The word that is used there for affliction literally means a mental affliction or a mental illness. What he's saying is literally when you pursue more money, it robs you of happiness and rest and relationships. And because you can't guarantee you're always going to have it, you're always trying to protect it, invest, or make more. He says what happens is when you build your life on money, it drives you insane. It makes you bitter. He says it makes you angry. It can make you envious. It can make you arrogant. Like, look what I've done, which also can become toxic. He says you find yourself frustrated and afflicted. And this is something, by the way, science is just now catching up to. Don't you love it when science is finally catching up to the Bible? Things that, that God's been saying for thousands of years now are like, oh, that's actually true. In a report published by the psychology department at San Diego State University, after analyzing mental health records between 1938 and 2007 uh, from more than 63,000 young adults, here is their primary conclusion, that consumerism is the major leading cause of the rise of depression among Americans. How about that? Why are people so unhappy? Because they keep getting more and more and more and more, and they realize it can't actually make them happy. So it leads to more depression. Um, and this is what we see with the lottery. I won't ask you how many of you play Powerball or do scratch-offs, but the reason that we do that is because we're like, man, if I could just win the lottery, if I could just win the lottery, then I know I'd be happy. Like, then I know all my problems would go away. 
Well, not exactly. According to the Business Insider, they tracked 14 lottery winners over the last uh, decade. I'll tell you about just two of them. You can go read this yourself. Type in Business Insider lottery winners. Here's just two stories. William Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery, but he was $1 million in debt within a year. I wish it would have never happened, Post said. It was a total nightmare. I was much happier when I was broke. Here's another one. Billy Bob Hurl Jr. was a preacher. Of course he was, with a name like Billy Bob. His prayers were answered when he hit the 31 million Texas jackpot in 1997. At first glance, life was good for Billy Bob. He quit his job, traveled to Hawaii, bought a ranch, six other homes, and new cars. However, he eventually divorced and died by suicide. Shortly before his death, he told his financial advisor, winning the lottery is the worst thing that ever happened to me. This is what a love for money can do for people. It's so subtle. So subtle. Guys, money is not evil, but the love of money, Paul says, is the root of all kinds of evil. It destroys our rest. It destroys our relationships. It not only cannot make you happy, it literally robs you of happiness. The question is, well, what do we do? What should our attitude be towards money? Well, the teacher goes on to tell us, verse 18, look with me. This is what I have observed to be good. That is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, which one is it? Like, are we supposed to hate money or are we supposed to love money? And the answer is neither. Money is not to be hated. Money is not to be loved. But money is something that we can and should enjoy. You say, well, how do I enjoy it? By keeping it in its proper place. By recognizing the fact that money can never actually satisfy you. It cannot give you relationships and the rest that ultimately you long for. It cannot give you a peace of mind and it certainly cannot defeat death. And therefore the teacher says if you want to enjoy money, if you want to enjoy your possessions, if you want to eat and drink and be merry, remember that money is not your God, but it can be a gift from God. The one who alone is able to give you the deepest longings of your heart. I wonder this morning as I say that, how many of you actually believe what I just said? That God can meet the deepest longings of your heart, that only he can meet the deepest longings of your heart. I wonder that how many of us in the room believe what David in Psalm 23 says, because God is with me, I lack nothing. I have everything that I need because I have God Because the truth is, if God is not enough for you, no amount of money or possessions will be enough for you. If you do not see God as your eternal treasure beyond the sun, then you will never be able to enjoy the temporary treasures that are under the sun. And that's what we actually see in the the next chapter. Actually, chapter 5 and chapter 6 will go together. I don't know if this throws you off, but those chapter breaks in your Bible, those weren't added until much, much, much later. Um, They actually go together, and we, we see... How true it is that, that, that if God is on our treasure, we can't actually enjoy the little temporary treasures of this world. In chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, I'll just read it to you. 
The teacher says, I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. Uh, in the Hebrew, that phrase weighs heavily. Uh, a good English translation for that is it sucks. <laughs> I've seen another evil under the sun that weighs heavily on mankind. It sucks, right? God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, so they lack nothing their hearts desire. They literally have everything they want, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Verse 3, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial. I say to you that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, talking about this child, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy prosperity, do not all end up in the same place. So it's because God is not his treasure, he's not able to enjoy the temporary treasures of life. He can't. He can't. He's making them out to be way more than what they are, and therefore he doesn't even enjoy all the stuff that he has. So it's better to be a dead child than to be that man or to be that woman so the question is how do we begin to treasure god and i believe it's by realizing that god first treasured you it's by realizing that god loved you so much that in the greatest act of generosity the world has ever known he gave the bible says his only son so that through him rather than perishing you could have eternal life abundant life life that is truly life And it's only whenever you get this, only when you see just how much God treasures you, can you begin to treasure him, which as a result frees us. It keeps us from being controlled and enslaved by the temporary and fleeting treasures of this world. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 5. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How in the world can you do that? That seems so much easier said than done. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content today with what you have. How? Here's the answer. Because God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's how. Because that's the good news of the gospel that has to settle into our hearts if we're going to be freed from the love of money. The good news of the gospel, as we said before, it's not just that you are forgiven of sin, but it's that no matter what happens to you because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you can now have a relationship with the God of the universe, and he is the source of all that is good and beautiful and true, and there is nothing anybody can do to ever take that from you. In a lot of this reality, there are three things I want to encourage you to do to help fight against greed, three things to help you live compelled by the love of God rather than controlled by the love of money. And here they are very quickly. Number one, in order to fight against greed, I want to encourage you before you make a purchase, pray. Don't assume God's okay with you spending his money the way you've been spending it. So pray. Whenever you go into that person's house this week and you're like, ah, I wish I had this couch or I wish we had this rug or this TV or, and then just like go in and buying it. Or like seeing someone drive a car and be like, ah, I need a newer car. And just going to get it. Like rather than doing that, pray. And just ask God, like, do you want me to have this? Before you go add to cart, buy, do you want me to do this? It's your money, God. How do you want me to spend it? Pray. Secondly, in order to guard against greed, give. Be generous. Randy Alcorn says this, giving is God's cure for greed. It is God's way of freeing you from the bondage and slavery that comes from living with a closed hand. And you're like, well, where should I give? First, start by giving to your family. 
Make sure that your family has their needs met. And that might be a whole other conversation of what do we actually need? You know, John, Johnny Rockefeller, uh, he was asked, how much is enough? Let me just ask you that. How much is enough? Have you ever actually set an amount for your family and said, you know what, if we make anything beyond this, we're giving it away. Because we don't, well, this is just how much we need right here. So we might have to have a conversation on what does our family actually need, but start there. Give to your family. Paul says if you don't provide for your family, literally you're worse than a non-believer. 1 Timothy 5, 8. Secondly, I would say give to the poor. Jesus says in Matthew 25, you want to know the difference between the sheep and the goats? You want to know how you can tell if you're actually a Christian or a non-Christian? This is Jesus. Go read this on your own. It's how you treat the poor. It's how you care for the widows and the orphans. This is what has convicted me this past week. Listen, you want to know how if you're seeking first the kingdom of God or seeking first your kingdom? If you're seeking first your kingdom, you will always be comparing yourself to people who have more. You'll always be looking to people who have more. But if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, you'll always be looking to people who have less. If you're seeking first your kingdom, always looking to more and thinking, how can I get what they have? But if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, you look at those who have less and think, how can I maybe deny a want in order to meet a need? Third, give to brothers and sisters. In Galatians 6.10, Paul says, so as we have every opportunity, let's do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. Especially the household of faith. Let's take care of each other in our missional communities. When you hear of a need, be quick to jump and to meet that need. Lastly, I would say, practice giving by practicing the tithe, by giving to the church. And a tithe, by the way, it's 10% of your gross income. And this is something that is taught all through the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. People sometimes will come to me and say, well, Jesus never said we need a tithe. And that's not true. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. For you tithe meant deal and cumin. And the agrarian culture, that was the same as saying, you bring your money to the temple. You bring your money to the church, so to speak. But you've neglected the, the, the weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And listen to what he says. This you ought to have done, but without neglecting the other. So Jesus says, you should tithe. Like, don't, don't hear me saying you shouldn't tithe. Keep giving 10% of your gross, right? But, but also make sure you do justice. You do mercy, that you practice faithfulness. And by the way, just so you know, like, ways that we use your money whenever you give to the church, like part of it is we pay salaries. It is like we can't work full-time jobs and also lead and manage the church. And so as the church gets bigger, you add more staff and you need more money to pay salaries. It also provides us a space to meet, um, insurance buildings, right? Uh, we're about to put, I think it's $38,000 in plumbing again here, right? Like that kind of stuff. Like we don't just like that money doesn't like just, just appear, right? Like people give so we can take care of what God's given us. Uh, money helps us develop leaders. Right now, I'm meeting every Thursday morning with 10 men in our church, 10 men who want to be pastors. 10 men. We can't do that apart from money. It helps us with children's equipment and curriculum, student ministry. We're able to give away thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars every single year to church planning and missions and all sorts of other ministries to ensure the good news of the gospel is going out all over the world to the last, the least, and the lost. Like your giving allows for that to happen. And by the way, let me just say this. We really don't need your money. We don't. And God doesn't need your money. Like you giving is not so much about us, but it's about you. I was thinking this yesterday, um, check my time. I think I'm good. 
I was thinking about this yesterday. I was putting Christmas lights on my roof just because it was warm and, and not super windy. And uh, my son wanted to come up and, and, and help with the Christmas lights. Here's the deal. I actually didn't need him to help, but I knew that it would be good for him to help. He has a fear of heights. He wanted to kind of like take that risk and get up. He actually got up at first. He's like, no, I got to go back down. Like, okay, man, it's fine. And then like five minutes later, he's like, all right, I'm coming back up. And he was up there on the roof and, and I didn't need him to help, but like he needed that. And I thought, you know, like that's kind of the way giving is, is giving is a way for us to take a risk. It's a way for us to step out in faith and know that when I do this, that like I have a father who's going to take care of me and then I'm going to be okay. And it frees us in a way to experience life and to see things from a different perspective. And, and, and listen, I get it. Like some of you are like, Jared, I can't give right now. I'm poor. Like I don't have any money. And I get it. When Megan and I first got married, you know how much money we had in our bank account? We had $82 in our bank account. Within a year of being married, I remember us going and trying to, uh, went to Jonesboro, uh, to, to buy some Christmas presents for our family. And I went to draw money out of the ATM. I think we were like, Hey, we have enough to spend, I think a hundred dollars on your parents, my parents, you know, brothers and I went to draw money and we literally overdrew out of the ATM with just a hundred dollars a year into our marriage. And so like, I get it. Like there were times early on where I'm like, okay, are we going to keep trusting God? Are we going to keep giving? Are we going to keep doing this? Even if it doesn't make sense on paper, or are we going to kind of try to do our own thing? Like, it's not always easy, but here's what I want you to understand. If you're not generous with little, you're not going to be generous with much. You will not be. I promise you. I have never met a generous rich man who was a generous poor man, who was not first a generous poor man. It's just not going to happen. And Jesus is very clear on that. Generosity, guys, listen, it is not about what's in your bank account. It's about what's in your heart. And that is why it's so important for us, lastly, to always remember the gospel. That is the third way that we fight against greed, to remember everything that I just said earlier, to remember that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. The apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content in all situations, whether I am rich or I am poor. And how is that possible? He goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We like to put that on eye black, don't we? Like we love to use that in sports and say, I can hit the home run because God gives me strength. I can score a touchdown because God gives me strength. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the reason that I can be content, whether I have a little or I have a lot, is because God has already given me the ultimate gift by giving me himself. And therefore, it is this gift, because I have received this, what he says is now, I have everything that I need. I have everything. He says, I am now good, no matter what happens. I am secure. I am satisfied. I am content. Because my goal this morning is not to guilt you into giving. I promise you that is not my goal. My goal is not to shame you into giving or to, 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 to scare you into giving. Like I want to motivate our church to be generous, but the only way we're going to be motivated to be generous is not by guilt or shame or fear, but it's by the grace of God. Like, man, I, I want us to get to a place where we can say, like, man, I get to give. Like, I get to now love others the way God has loved me by giving me his son, Jesus. With all that being said, I, I, I want to transition into a time of communion. And by the way, I hope you all learn to be content with this not as good of communion cups this week. Our good communion cups are on back order for like three weeks. Um, but as we transition into a time of communion, I do think this needs to be a time where we feel the weight of our own greed. 
I do think this is a time where we need to feel the weight of our own greed or the fact that maybe we have loved money more than we've loved God and loved one another. And so let this be a time where you feel the weight of that, but also let this be a time, listen to me guys, let this be a time where you remember before you were ever generous towards God, God has been generous towards you. Let this be a time where you remember that long before you ever gave God anything, he gave you everything. God didn't just give you 10%. He gave it all. Jesus didn't just give you 10%. He laid down his entire life for you so that now, no matter what happens here on earth, we can know that when we trust him, that goodness and love and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. And though we may not ever have a mansion here, we will have a mansion for eternity in our Father's house. We will, over, we will enjoy the overflow of his perfections forever. Remember that as you partake of communion today. If you're here, though, and you are not a Christian, rather than partaking of communion, you need to know that you are poor. You are poor. Jesus says that in, in, in Revelation, right into one of his churches. You think you're rich because you have all this stuff, but you can have everything in the world, but you actually have nothing if you do not have Jesus. And so the good news is today, you don't have to use your money to pay for Jesus. Jesus has already paid for everything. You just come to him with the empty hands of faith and say, I recognize my need for you. And if you do that for the first time today, come and talk with me. Talk with somebody else here. We would love to help you with next steps.